Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In the ancient world, medicine was pretty rudimentary, and so people looked for other means of treating their illnesses. For example, ritual healing. The various ways that people sought divine intervention. This is Frankel in order fellow Megan Nutzman. Um, diseases and injuries uh, that they may not have been successful treating through medical means, or that they may have gone straight to divine intervention instead of going to a doctor. Nutzman is an assistant professor of history at Old Dominion University in Virginia. She divides her research on healing rituals into a few different categories. And I define those categories based on the the agent that people saw as the cure or the means by which this cure was administered. So my three categories are person, place, and object. So, for example, in the object category, Nutzman studies amulets believed to harbor healing powers. Things that people wore on their body, they, they carried maybe in a little pouch or in a pocket, or they wore it as a piece of jewelry. And on these amulets were images and texts that were seen to be powerful. And so there was something about this combination of text or image on a written, on a physical surface that you could attach to your body that would promote healing that would be protective or curative. Amulets came in a variety of types. For example, there were gemstone amulets. So they're semi-precious or precious um, stones that have had carved into them designs and words. These are the most simple of our types of amulets because of the medium. There isn't a lot of space. They're usually pretty small. They usually have a picture, and then maybe a word or two on them. And there were also metal amulets. So we have metal jewelry amulets in the forms of pendants and rings and bracelets, and these have short texts on them. And then we also have one of the most interesting things, which are these little metal scrolls. So they take a sheet of gold or a sheet of silver or copper or bronze, and they pound it out really thin, and they use that as a writing surface. And then when they're done writing their text, they roll up the scroll really small, and then they, again, would probably wear it um, in a pouch or something like that around their neck. And then there were probably also other types of amulets that haven't survived. We know from Egypt that a lot of people wrote texts, amulets, on papyri, but for the most part, papyri don't survive in Israel. It's simply too, um, it's too wet of a climate, except for in the desert, and we don't have any papyri amulets from Israel. But almost certainly people would have used those also, and they probably would have been by far the cheapest and most prevalent of our amulets. So if you wanted one of these amulets, where would you get one? Well, there's some evidence that you would probably seek out a ritual practitioner. People who have the knowledge and the skills, uh, most importantly, the ability to write, that they would go to, um, they would request an amulet, and this person would provide it for them. Now, it's important to note that in many cases, an amulet's healing power was seen to come not so much from the object itself as from the words it contained. In a culture where not everybody is literate, there is, there's a certain amount of priority that's placed on writing at all. And so you can see how the idea of writing out a prayer um, and putting it on something makes it more permanent, makes it more special, because it takes a special set of skills in order to do that. 
But in other cases, certainly it is the actual words. It's not just the act of writing them, but it's the actual words that are important. Nutzman says that some of the best examples of this come from Aramaic and Samaritan amulets. Where we have the divine name, the name of God in Hebrew, written out and emphasized. And so sometimes it's just that it's repeated many, many times. And sometimes um, you get the different letters. We're talking about the tetragrammaton here. So you get the four letters of the divine name written out and the letters repeated over and over again. So you'd have the first letter, the Yod, repeated a bunch of times, and then the Hey repeated a bunch of times. So you see this emphasis on the divine name itself, and this seems to be the word itself is providing protection or healing to the person who wears it. Other names also featured prominently on amulets. We have what seems to be a Greek version of the divine Hebrew name that gets translated as Yao, and this shows up all the time on amulets in Greek, and it, in, in contexts where there's a lot of a lot of different cultural influences. It's a lot of cases where it doesn't seem to be a Jewish amulet. You also get names like Abrasax. Michael shows up all of the time in these amulets. So these divine names or these figures that people imagine as, um, as powerful gods or powerful figures, there's a lot of borrowing back and forth among these amulets. And so people take a little bit from one tradition and a little bit from another, and it, it merges together into this unique sort of um, final product. Nutzman says that many scholars believe that amulets containing text are written versions of what began as oral rituals. So originally, you might have had somebody say a prayer over you, and with time, these prayers that were originally spoken came to be written down, and then you would put them and you'd wear them on your person, and it sort of makes that original prayer permanent. Now, it's important to note that the way that Nutzman studies these amulets is breaking new ground. You see, traditionally, scholars have made a sharp distinction between magic ritual and religious ritual in the ancient Middle East, denigrating magic as primitive and therefore unworthy of serious scholarly consideration. But for Nutzman, the distinction between magic and ritual is arbitrary and not true to how regular people most likely thought about amulets as healing objects. So say you're taking a mother and her child is sick. She's got some options available to her. And I think that when that mother was considering what to do about her sick child, her first thought wasn't, well, I want to go to a cult of a a sanctuary of Asclepius because that's real religion versus getting an amulet is magic. I don't think this is anywhere in her thought process. I think her thought process is more along the lines of what's available, what can I afford, what's within an easy distance for me to get to. And so I think if we focus on the fact that people are sick and they're looking for help to relieve their illnesses, relieve their injuries, then we We see a spectrum of healing options, and we shouldn't divide them according to this arbitrary modern or late 19th, early 20th century distinction between magic and religion. It's imposing something on the ancient evidence that that wasn't there in the first place. Now, as she mentioned, alongside objects related to ritual healing, Nutzman also studies people. And she says there are two different ways that people are portrayed as doing ritual healing in the ancient Middle East. 
So we have people who are performing healings, who are said to perform healings by using these instructions or these manuals, sort of a set series of things. You do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to produce a healing. We see these in these um, these handbooks from Egypt. They're called the Greek Magical Papyri that describe, that give instructions for how to do these sorts of things. But I think we also see something similar going on in early Christianity. In early Christianity, you have um, people who are anointed with with oil for healing. So again, there's a specific process. You pray, you lay hands on, and um, this is, and you anoint with oil, and then this is going to produce a miracle. The other type of ritual healer is a person endowed with special innate healing abilities, the most famous of whom was Jesus. And it was this perceived power, Nutzman says, that likely played a role in the rapid growth of Christianity. What happens with Jesus is that Jesus, in the stories that are told about him, and in the stories that are told about some of his followers, some of the early Christians, they aren't portrayed as following these formulae. Instead, they're portrayed as healing out of their own sort of personal power or their own connection to the divine. And this, I think, is what is different in early Christianity. And it isn't the fact that miracles are associated with Jesus or that miracles are associated with early Christianity. Because we have miracles associated with Asclepius, we have miracles associated with amulets, we have all of these different types of healings that are taking place. What's different is that people, the person category has changed a little bit. And so it's not as much about saying a set of words or doing a set of actions, it's about the person himself. And this becomes a sort of revolutionary idea, and I think that this is ultimately the aspect of early Christian miracles that draws converts. It's not the fact that there are miracles in general, because people saw these as taking place all the time. As Christianity gained purchase, it began to evolve away from Judaism. But scholars debate exactly when Christianity made a definitive break from Judaism, some arguing that it began as early as the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, others that the split happened centuries later. Although Nutzman isn't interested in pointing to a specific timeline, she says that looking at healing rituals can help shed light on the question of when Judaism and Christianity truly parted ways. I'm not trying to say that ritual healing is the the primary reason or the only reason for this separation, but rather that it shows us how elite leaders, so these elite Christian authors and these rabbinic authors, were using specific things to draw rhetorical boundaries. So Chrysostom... Nutzman is referring to John Chrysostom, the Bishop of Antioch and a leading figure in early Christianity during the 4th century CE talked about healing. He talked about people who went to a synagogue near Antioch, and he seems to be describing people sleeping there in expectation of of dreams. Uh, So this is similar to what we know went on in the cult of Asclepius, and he's chastising people, Christians in his congregation, for doing this. In other words, Chrysostom is drawing a rhetorical boundary between what he sees as Christian and non-Christian practices and chastising Christians who continued to observe what he saw as Jewish rituals, which suggests that the lines between Christianity and Judaism were blurred at least as late as the 4th century of the Common Era. He recognizes that 
this issue of ritual healing, people looking for relief from deadly diseases and injuries, that people are desperate and they're willing to do whatever it takes. And because of that, we have, I think, a lot of blurring of the lines. Christians are perfectly happy to imitate what pagans are doing, what Jews are doing, if they think it's going to work. And I think that this is true for Jews too. I think Jews are also borrowing from these other traditions. So I think there is this sort of common ritual healing milieu and people are taking the bits and pieces that sound successful or that they know somebody who did it and it worked. I mean, I imagine people meeting up at a well or in a marketplace and exchanging stories about sick relatives and saying, oh, did you try this? Did you try that? And these people going back to their homes and taking these suggestions and sort of changing them a little bit and making them work in their own context. A key element of Nutzman's research is archaeology. Not only the amulets, but also excavations at sites known to be places of healing in ancient Palestine, such as the Hamat Gadar Hot Springs at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. In the excavations, the archaeologists found inscriptions and they found some things that were likely votive offerings that uh, people left behind after visiting the site. Together, textual sources and material artifacts help Nutzman paint a more complete picture of what went on at places like Hamat Gadar. All of these sort of pieces, none of them spell out the story completely, but I think if you connect the dots, you see these this picture of the hot springs as sacred sites, as places of healing, not exclusively places of healing. People also just went to them to go and visit the baths, but as places that could host an encounter between you and God and one in which healing might come out of it. Now, all of this stuff about healing rituals and amulets and hot springs may seem pretty remote, but in our age of seemingly intractable political divisions, Nutzman sees her work as particularly relevant for the present moment. Just as the ancient world is marked by exceptionalism, we have that today, and part of the project is looking at what united Jews and Christians and Samaritans and pagans when it came to health and healing in the ancient world. And so just as we can see these universal human nature, human concerns in the ancient world, I think we can see today also that despite this discussion of exceptionalism, this this idea of exceptionalism, that a lot unites us today also, that we still have the same needs and that we should that we can look past what divides us to what unites us. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.